Welcome to the Unblocking Crypto Podcast. This podcast is not financial advice. It's meant for entertainment purposes only. These are just the opinions of a couple of rambling wrecks. Welcome back to episode number 65 of Unblocking Crypto. How another crazy week in the crypto space. I know you yeah. took some time off. Welcome back. Yeah, it was nice to unplug a little bit and then, you know, Google around and find some some stuff that went down in, in Bitcoin world. Yeah, so maybe to start off, we've been talking about regulation and just kind of what's going on, what will be happening across regulation in at least the cryptocurrency market. There's a lot of stuff happening um, that we can talk about. Maybe the first thing is this whole BRICS discussion. And for those people that haven't heard of it, BRICS is still... China, India, South, South America, Africa, South, South Africa, Africa, Russia. So they have been kind of going after a way to eliminate or reduce the need of the U.S. dollar being the world's reserve currency. So you, you theoretically have five countries that are looking at this, five fairly, fairly large countries. They now are up to about 24 countries that are interested. So there's 13 that have formally asked to be a part of it, and then six more that have informally asked. And what they are looking at doing is creating a new crypto that would be backed by some sort of precious assets or other assets. And most of that is most likely going to be some sort of precious metals. So whether it's gold or something else, but they are trying to create an alternative to the US dollar. Interesting to see. I know it'll probably happen at some point, but it's (laughs) also kind of scary that it's, there's a lot of other countries that are joining now i think a handful of those are from africa right which china has had a pretty big stronghold in africa Um, but there's a lot of infrastructure development that could happen in africa that if this happens a little little scary for the us that's for sure yeah um the BRICS thing is interesting they are I, i keep reading where they're they're trading energy oil things like that and selling it for like one or other currencies that are not the U.S. dollar, which, you know, that seems to be a little bit of the erosion of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. The argument would be, oh, it's just a little bit here and there. You know, we're in a temporary, a weird time temporarily as Russia, you know, is is attacking the Ukraine and, and things like that. But to me, you know, the United States had a firm grip on the global need for U.S. dollars. Everybody's trading oil, fertilizer, food, a lot of raw materials. And so if that starts to fall apart and the U.S. dollar erodes, there's definitely room for a new, you know, you'll have like a bipolar leadership globally where you, you know, instead of just having one United States leader, you have the United States on one side and the BRICS countries on the other. Um, the funny thing is if they do a cryptocurrency that's backed by precious metals, we're going, it's like going back to, you know, pre 1971 us dollar, right? Like the us dollars used to be backed by gold and everything was fixed and all that. So guess what will happen with this cryptocurrency after a while, right? The, the BRICS governments will be like, ah, we need to print more money so we can go to war or we can do whatever. So, uh, we're going to depeg the, the crypto from the precious metals. Or you can't audit the precious metals storage, uh, in the, and it's not actually backed, you know, one to one or whatever. There, whatever the peg will be. So that's, um, you know, that's interesting. But I would think 
you know, based on my experience with sending money internationally and dealing with all that, I would think a cryptocurrency that people trust that's backed by something would be a, an attractive thing for countries to exchange in. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, during this whole war with Ukraine, the U.S. government tried to create these sanctions on Russia. It kind of killed their their ruble for a little bit. But Russia does have a ton of com commodities, and they had their ruble against the dollar jumped back up even higher than it was before the, the war for quite some time. And now it's kind of back almost where it was when it started. So commodities, for the most part, are what's keeping them in the game right. and not so much just having the dollar be this thing that you have to have. Uh, so, yeah, it's it'll be interesting just to see what happens moving forward. Now, when when. When the United States passed the sanctions that basically told Russia that their U.S. dollar holdings and U.S. Treasury holdings in their sovereign sovereign fund were invalid, they, they couldn't be spent. So none of the countries on Team USA can accept Russian dollars or treasury. That basically told everybody, oh, the U.S. dollar, they can if you, they, if you do something that the U.S. doesn't like, they can just make your dollars worth zero. And I think... The, that philosophy is backfiring and and it's coming back around to, hey, maybe we need a non-U.S. dollar-based global currency that we can exchange energy and other commodities in. So I think, I think you know, I, I don't think that it's a coincidence that for the first time ever, a country had U.S. dollars that they couldn't spend. And now they're like, hey, maybe we need to spend something other than U.S. dollars in order to buy oil. Yeah, and, and also another great sales pitch for why Bitcoin will be successful long term. <laughs> right. You don't have anybody that can just say, uh, sorry, your Bitcoin's not valuable. Yep. So another thing that happened here this past week, we had another bank fail, another large bank fail. First Republic, uh, a bank in San Francisco, they had over $100 billion in outflows. I think their stock value dropped by like 98%. And no one really stepped in to save them at all instead i think they were pretty much sold to jp morgan for what just over ten and a half billion dollars yeah but their book value was like 18. uh well they had 173 billion dollars of loans on the books so jp morgan got what i think sounds like a killer deal of 173 mm -hmm. billion dollars in loans for 10.6 billion I think the FDIC had to put in 13 billion to help yep. with all this, which I'm not really sure where that went. But I guess the whole point behind all of this is First Republic had almost zero expo exposure to the crypto industry. So this is not a crypto related bank failure. There is something else going on in the system that is causing banks to have a problem. And crypto is not the problem. <laughs> no, for, for um, First Republic, it was they were just giving out a ton of loan a ton of loans when interest rates were really low and didn't they didn't adjust their um their interest rate exposure so uh, they got themselves into trouble that way so yeah that's is it a good thing that a bank failed and it didn't have any crypto exposure and uh, no it's not good bank failures aren't good like the whole fdic we kind of we have to stop the dominoes you know we can't have contagion bank failure it, that that probably needs to work in order for everything to go kind of smoothly but 
Is it kind of nice that a bank failed and they can't blame crypto for it? Yeah, it's kind of nice. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, I don't want the banks to fail. I don't think this is the last one because I think there's still some underlying problems that are going to continue to come out. But the message with the last three was crypto was at fault. And and that's been kind of frustrating. And it's, uh, I mean, you look at like what Coinbase just came out and did. They have this whole standby crypto campaign that they're releasing. So the Coinbase CEO released a video with his chief legal officer that pretty much explained what their history has been with the SEC and how they've been uh, ex exchanging discussions with them and why this Wells notice that the SEC just issued them is a little unfair and it doesn't make any sense for what they're doing. So I, I'm kind of intrigued to see where this goes because they kind of laid out exactly what what's going on at that they've told the sec this entire time this is the business plan uh the sec approved them to go public based on everything they were telling them and what they've been telling them the entire time is they don't list securities there's also that video that just kind of popped out from gary gensler back at mit in 2018 where he came out and said 75 percent of all the tokens that are listed are not securities and now he has definitely changed his mind on <laughs> So it, it's interesting where this will go because it is becoming kind of a, a pissing match between some very large companies and the SEC. And I'm not sure where it will go, but it is it is something that needs to be talked about before the U.S. completely gets away from crypto. Altogether. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting, too, that it's Coinbase because Coinbase is a public company. So you've got a large number of various shareholders. Whereas if it, if it's one of these smaller companies that's private, then typically their ownership looks like private equity and you know big money investors, like a small number of rich investors. So if you're the SEC, you're really supposed to be protecting the guys that own Coinbase. You know, you're 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 kind of unqualified investors. You're that's who you're trying to protect, right? The the guys that are going to invest. 25 million dollars they should be able to do their own due diligence they should be able to understand what their investments are <clears throat> things like that so i think everybody's just going to continue to give the sec and gary gensler a hard time for not protecting the small investor um because that's really part of what they're supposed to be doing a big part of what they're supposed to do um and but you know this kind of comes back to we did a we did a podcast maybe january of last year where the white house sent out a, a request to a bunch of different agencies to report back on you know what their thoughts on bitcoin and different cryptos are and they gave them timelines like six to 12 months and all of those things and i still haven't really seen those reports come back or be published or anything um and it, it feels like they're still doing the same playbook of like kicking the can down the road not really passing regulations or legislation that gives some clarity to these companies so they can operate within the guardrails and stay in the lane and not get into trouble, but also not slow down the innovation and, and, and choke out the, the U S's involvement in, you know, emerging markets like Bitcoin and crypto. So I'm, it's funny, I, you know, along that same line, one of the things I was, I listened to, so there's a, there's a podcast called Bitcoin audible. Um, this guy named Guy Swan does it. And it's basically, books on tape but it's usually blog posts or sometimes it's essays or longer things and this one was on choke point 2.0 um, a blog post that nick carter wrote and 
basically he compares what's going on in crypto right now to you know operation choke point under obama where the department of justice the fdic the occ the uh, office of the currency comptroller they put pressure on banks to not do business with undesirable industries so it's it wasn't in their purview to discontinue or pressure or overregulate the firearms industry or payday lenders adult industry companies um but what they could do is pressure banks to not do business with them um to kind of squeeze them out and make it more difficult for that for that market to grow and so his thesis is they're running the same playbook but now it's targeted at crypto companies um so like when signature bank went under and they excluded all the crypto assets from being purchased by whoever purchased the bank um you know those those kinds of things even all the way down to barney frank saying that the bank was fine this is just an attack on crypto uh so nick carter listed a, a dozen different kind kind of things like this where banks are feeling the squeeze um to not do business with crypto but on in my head i'm like yeah that's fine they can do that it's it's still not a it's not a very coordinated effort it's not it might slow things down but but bitcoin's Bitcoin and crypto have a pretty good hold on in, in the United States. A lot of people are into it. It's in the news. People are interested in it. And quite a few people, uh, you know, I think we've seen up to 20, 25% of Americans have some sort of crypto holding. And so, you know, only 50% of the country votes. I would think of that 25%, at least 12.5% of it vote. So we're in the middle of 2023. Next year's an election year. So if they do too much to overregulate or squeeze crypto and Bitcoin, uh, I think that you're going to see that become a campaign issue um, next year. And so I, I think that there, there are limits to what the government's going to be able to do. But if people want it, then it's not going to it's not something that they can just shut off because their interest is getting elected again. Uh, so, yeah, so I think, you know, we talked about last week, the European MICA legislation that uh, gave it at least a clear picture of what companies need to do in order to operate legally in Europe. And the U.S. is going to need to give something similar. And if they don't and they just push country push companies out of the country, you know, that's that's a negative. Right. You, you, you want to be a leader in in new markets. I mean, it, the United States did a great job with the internet and you know silicon valley you know, wasn't an accident right so we 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 grew that and i mean all, all the way down to getting immigrants like elon musk to come to the united states and and grow companies you know that's kind of what you want that's why you want the innovation is so you can import talent and increase your gdp you know keep jobs going new high paying jobs all that stuff and so the longer this goes, I think the, the worse it is for the U.S. And I think they'll realize it pretty quick. They might re realize it before it's too late is the, is the problem, right? And that's what I think what we're starting to, to see is <laughs> we're, you already have companies like Coinbase that are looking to leave the U.S. or put other locations outside the U.S. And at, at what point is it too late? Right? So, yes, I, I mean, I hope there's going to be a lot of discussion over the next year working up to this the election i mean 
the having happening is going to be what April of next year too. So mm-hmm. Bitcoin so, is yeah, going to usually be in- that that impact from the having it comes a few months after it. So that yeah. would put it real close to election time. So yeah, if we end up with a little bull run or a big bull run, then that turns the heat up on yeah. on uh, on elected officials that are anti Bitcoin or anti crypto. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it, it's going to be a major discussion point, I think, in, in 2024 for sure. It's it's already in the news today, talking about the happening, and we're just getting started. We're still a year away. <laughs> right. Yeah, I did see, uh, you know, these on-chain metrics, they estimated that 28,000 Bitcoin is purchased every month by dollar-cost average buyers, right? They have it set. I want to spend... $200 um, a month or a week or whatever. And so that that Bitcoin is just coming off of exchanges. And that's not so much of a big deal because right now that we're mining about 27,000 Bitcoin a month. <laughs> but if the dollar cost averaging stays the same or grows and starting next spring, that 27,000 Bitcoin turns into 13 and a half then the supply crunch starts to come into play. I mean, it's exactly why Bitcoin should appreciate against the dollar. Um, so yeah, that's that. the happening is, is a interesting piece to the Bitcoin thing because it seems like four years is long enough for most people to forget that it happens. Oh yeah. Uh, on the flip side of that, uh, Janet Yellen talked about, uh, hey, we're out of cash, we're out of money. We need, we need money by June 1st. Uh, or we're gonna be we're gonna be missing our obligations. They uh, this quarter they thought they would need to borrow four hundred and fifty billion, and instead they needed seven hundred and twenty five billion, which is like a pretty big miss. Similarly, that in January they thought they could survive into the July to uh, September timeframe, and they're gonna barely make it out of May before they run out of before they run out of money that and the ability to borrow more. Again, this is why Bitcoin should appreciate against the dollar. Uh, so they have to, they're going to have to raise the debt ceiling. We're not in a situation where we, we can't, but you raise the debt limit, they continue to increase the interest rate. So every hundred billion dollars that you have, that you borrow, uh, the majority of that's in short term debt. So you're borrowing it at five, six percent instead of we used to be borrowing at one two percent and the one and two percent debt that we picked up uh we're having to refinance at five to six percent so this is the whole debt spiral conversation where um they raise the debt limit they take on more debt that debt has uh, increases the interest expense and then before you know it your interest expense plus your your obligations to the military and um, entitlements is more than tax receipts. Oh, by the way, one of the reasons that we missed this is because tax receipts are lower than they thought they would be because everybody took losses last year and canceled out some gains so they didn't get the tax revenue they thought they would. You keep raising the debt, you keep raising the interest rate, uh, more people are going to have those losses that they can that they can mark off against their gains, and you're going to be in the same situation for 2023. Um, on the flip side, if you don't raise the debt limit and you start to default on uh, on loans, then that's really bad for the government. But would 
start to trip people into the credit default swaps and the uh, that we talked about last week that are about two percent, and it'll push people into Bitcoin. Uh, as they run away from the dollar, quite a bit of that is going to find its way into Bitcoin. You know, get into gold and everything else, but um, but you know, Bitcoin is kind of viewed as an insurance against sovereign debt uh, default. So that's we're closer to that again. Um, I think, well, I, th- I think that the, the, the debt limit being raised happens so often that people don't care anymore, but it's, I think it's 31 and a half trillion right now. So not great. Yeah. And it's interesting too. I mean, we talked a few months ago about Balaji, uh, predicting that Bitcoin's going to go to a million dollars in 90 days. And while that's probably not going to happen, a lot of what he was talking about is exactly what we're seeing play out where all these issues are coming into play and will Bitcoin go up? Yes, absolutely. The question is, will it hit a million dollars? Probably not in three months, but if you continue to go down this spiral of craziness, then uh, there is a chance it happens, whether that's months or years or decades down the road is still kind of to be determined. Right. And does that one Bitcoin that equals a million dollars, does that buy you a car or does it buy you a house or does it buy you a loaf of bread? So that's that's yeah. that's a piece of it. Um, and the last thing I I, I saw that uh, the Bitcoin hit a new all time high in transaction five hundred and sixty eight thousand transactions in a day, um, in which is kind market. of funny. But what's that in the bear market? Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Like <laughs> it, it beat the last all time high that happened in twenty seventeen when it was like peak bull market and everybody's buying stuff. Um, you know, it's yeah, we we're at thirty thousand or like twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars of Bitcoin, but it's you know, it's up from sixteen to eighteen thousand dollars of Bitcoin six months ago. I mean, this isn't this is not a, a massive bull run. There's not a lot of hype. You're not seeing it all over the place. People aren't really talking about it. Um, but they're doing more transactions. A lot of that's due to the ordinals that we talked about, where people are tagging sats with different text or images in them, uh, in the comments and kind of doing like a bitcoin based nft so again you know uh, everything's good for bitcoin until people don't want to transfer value across the internet instantly um this to me we talked about our ordinals bad or good for bitcoin and it's like well it'll test it um and that's kind of what it is so if to me you're talking about do you need to adjust the taproot modifications so that this can't happen or do you just push more transactions to layer twos like lightning so that they're faster and cheaper and then reconcile on the on the blockchain you know once a day or however you know that will they decide to break that up so it's just you know uh it's an emerging market and they'll figure out a way to make it work but you know half a million transactions in a day isn't enough to run the global monetary system but um at least it's a stress test you know we're still early days so that i think it's uh, i think it's worth worth looking at i still don't think that the goal is for bitcoin to be running the monetary system of the entire world right so i, I think there will be something else that will handle a lot of the data day-to-day or crazy transactions that are happening and everything can be settled back in Bitcoin at the end of the day, but it's, I don't think every transaction, kind of like we talked about, you're not gonna buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin typically. 
right? That that will probably be handled by another chain and then connected, ideally to the Bitcoin Bitcoin network at some point. Yeah, yeah. It it, it just comes down to people. Do, when do a lot of people trust Bitcoin, right? You can have your checking account in whatever currency or cryptocurrency you want. It's what your saving account is in that. Uh, that's what to me. That's kind of what Bitcoin's going after. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of whether the there really is all these digital dollars that happen, and you're just transferring Bitcoin into digital dollars to use on a day to day account, and then when you get a bunch of them, you want to transfer back to Bitcoin to kind of hold it and save it to make sure you don't lose against inflation or whatever's yeah. happening. Yeah. So another interesting thing that happened that I think is pretty exciting: the Utah passed their DAO Act, and I know we've talked about DAO a little bit in the past. Uh, DAOs are the decentralized autonomous organizations, which is pretty much uh, a company set up in computer code. And what Utah is enabling is that DAOs in Utah will get some legal recognition and also some limited liability protection. So most people that have typically created LLCs, that the latest craze has been to do it in Delaware, because Delaware has been kind of the best place to do it. And if you look at it, I mean, Delaware is the second smallest state in the US and has the sixth largest <laughs> GDP <laughs> in the states, right? So um, it's exciting to see it's, it gives Utah theoretically, I mean, their goal is to be kind of the Delaware for Web3. So I'll be intrigued to see what where this goes. I mean, I think DAOs are, are very intriguing and there hasn't been a lot of support for them in the U.S. in the past. Everything's been done kind of outside of the U.S. So it's exciting to see there's another state that's taking a chance and trying to be that first mover in the U.S. and, and really allow uh, crypto to grow. Yeah, I mean, that's another reason why the U.S. is uniquely positioned to do well with playing in the crypto space. Because Utah can try this, it can completely fail. And it's not a big deal for the country. And if it does succeed, and then the next batch of states that are interested in it can can move forward, or they can see, oh, they're doing you know, with DAOs. Texas is doing well with Bitcoin. You know, what what's our play here? And different states. I mean, I feel like California and New York really felt the impact of like, oh, people can just move. Uh, they can just leave our state if they don't like it. And if you've got people that want to start crypto-based companies in states that aren't crypto-friendly, they're going to move, and then guess where that tax revenue goes? State where the work's done. So, so yeah, I, I think it's it's always a good move when when a state kind of does something to attract that sort of uh, like those innovative entrepreneurs. You know, if you like skiing and you're like crypto and you're into DAOs, like Utah might be a, a spot you're looking at moving to. Yeah. No. Uh, there's a lot of good things going on from that perspective. So we've talked a little bit about the government and choke point making it difficult for certain industries to be involved in crypto. What's exciting is you're starting to see some of the other large players make it easier for other industries to get more involved in crypto. So uh, Visa had a recent announcement that they are working together with AgroToken, Microsoft, and uh, Neo which they are pretty much developing a financial platform that's designed for farmers and small and medium-sized businesses. And that this platform now will allow the ability to kind of tokenize traditional contracts. 
So for example, if you had a, a Brazilian legal document, you could turn that onto an on-chain NFT and then use Visa's, they call it the universal payment channel that connects all these different uh, currency, whether it be a CDBC, a stablecoin, some sort of tokenized deposit, which would allow all the cross-currency interoperability to happen uh, in, in these different industries. So it, it's exciting to see. Uh, I mean, I think it's still pretty early on, but this would allow everything to be on blockchain and, and open up the doors for a lot of these commodities to be put on the blockchain. Yeah, I, I like that use case. Anytime you can eliminate headaches and cost, you know, there's then it makes it attractive. So, you know, you're talking about if you if you turn a real contract into a smart contract, now you don't have to have a person uh, receiving a payment and in, inputting it in and you know sending notices and late fees. All that stuff just happens, and so you cut out the cost of that. Cut out the, I mean, if you're Visa, you you can figure out a way to cut out the exchange rate costs or at least reduce them. So it doesn't matter what the, what the payments in, and you can pay the you can pay the contract in whatever currency they need to get paid in. So I think uh, I think that that probably has legs. And so not to be outdone by Mastercard, but Mastercard has come out with their I think they're calling it the Mastercard Crypto Confidential which the goal is to provide a common standard or infrastructure to verify transactions between consumers and businesses. And I think the initial focus is going to be on cross-border payments. And a lot of it's going to be most likely Latin America, Caribbean, and the U.S. going back and forth there. And they'll expand it from there. But what's really intriguing, the blockchains that they're partnering with, Solana, Aptos, Matic and Avalanche. So they're working with a lot of these major layer one and layer twos to create this platform that with very public blockchains that uh, people will be feel comfortable uh, using. So that's kind of exciting to see where that's going to go as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess Solana is going to have to figure out how to keep their network in operation all the time. <laughs> they're going to get into that. Maybe that's why they did it with multiple blockchains and not just have it all rely on Solana. Solana, on an interesting note, is working on coming out with a phone. I don't know if you've heard of this in, nope. in the next year or so. So they will have a, they're going to release a phone that has not only the Android Play Store, but also the Solana DAP Store. Because uh, if you look at just the mobile influence on crypto, crypto apps are growing quite a bit a decent rate, 15 something percent a year. Whereas most of your traditional banking and finance apps are almost going the opposite way, especially with all the latest news. So whether or not it's going to be successful or not, I'm not sure. But what they are doing is trying to make it to where it's very easy to have Web3 wallets on a phone that are secure. I'm still not sure I'm a fan of Solana, but... <laughs> no, I, I think it's smart to get into... because. You're going to have a lot of countries and people skip the desktop laptop world and go straight into mobile. Um, so why backtrack? I mean, I see it quite often where I'm using an app and I'm like, oh, I'll just go to the website. I, you know, I'm trying to do something complicated or do something involved. And the website is just a link to the app. Like there is no, yep. there is no internet based application 
and the app is just a mobile version of it. It's like, I mean, even my kids' Little League um, app where we track stats and, and keep book, uh, like the, the online version is useless. It's, it's made for phones because everybody's out at Little League baseball fields and they do every sport, but uh, so it's, it's mobile only. So yeah, skip, skip the desktop, skip the laptop and go straight to mobile. I think that's, that's smart. Yeah, we, we talked a few weeks ago about MetaMask making it a lot easier to get fiat onto the blockchain. PayPal has just announced that they are going to be enabling sometime in May of this month, I guess, 2023, that they are going to enable on-chain transfers um, from their Venmo accounts. So in the past, like we've talked about, everything we do on Venmo and PayPal stays on those wallets and you have to exchange it back to US dollars. And now for certain assets, you should be able to transfer off of your Venmo account into another um, wallet on that blockchain. So that's kind of exciting too. Yeah, that's good. Like I, back when PayPal first um, made it available that you could buy Bitcoin, I took like half of my PayPal account and just turned it into Bitcoin. And I don't want to turn it back into US dollars. And I can't really spend it out of Bitcoin, so it just sits there. And then my Venmo account, I'm like, I'm not, I just, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. Um, so it just stays in dollars. Yep. And then a um, a pretty large company out there, you probably have heard of them, Franklin Templeton. I think mm -hmm. they have about 1.4 trillion dollars in assets. They have just released the first uh, on-chain mutual fund. U.S. based too. So it is, I think it's called the on-chain U.S. government money fund. Their goal is for it to be kind of a money market fund that sticks to that dollar price point. Uh, but it is exciting that it is literally the first mutual fund that's U.S. based that will be rolling out. And they are using the Matic blockchain to do everything too. So once again, Matic becomes a very big player in this space. So now all ownership and all transactions will be on the Matic blockchain for everybody to see, uh, which theoretically you're not going to be able to have all these issues and, and not that you're going to have with a money market fund, but where you had GameStop having, what, 120 something percent of their share being sold short. You can't do that now when everything's on the blockchain for you to see who has true ownership. And then lastly is... Um, Alphabet. So Alphabet, the parent company of Google, has made an announcement that they're expanding their Google for startups cloud program. And what's intriguing is there are probably 12 or 13 different crypto projects that are being included in that uh, guys like Aptos and Base, Celo, Flow, Adara, Nansen, uh, Polygon, Solana, and a handful of other ones as well. So it, it's pretty exciting to see more crypto companies being involved there. And then what also happened is that same day, Nansen made an announcement uh, with Google that Nansen would be providing all of the Google Cloud customers real-time blockchain, blockchain data for what's going on. And the reason that's exciting is... Nansen probably has 250 million different tags for their blockchain wallets. So they're able to, you're able to see a lot of very real-time info if you can pay the price for the Nansen subscription. Huh. Uh, 
other than that, I mean, kind of some fun stuff going on. There is an app called Wi-Fi Map. I don't know if you've heard of this, but the, the interesting company, they, they have an app that's t- been around today, and they are kind of transitioning to the Web3 space a little bit. The goal of their company is much like they think water should be available to everyone to drink for free. They think Wi-Fi should be kind of the same thing where internet access should be free for everybody. Uh, They are transitioning the app that they have today that you can go download on Android or Apple uh, and adding a Web3 tokenomics module module to it to where if you do use this and kind of set up your Wi-Fi to be used by others, you do get incentivized with their token and I forget what it's called, probably Wi-Fi or something like that. And then you can turn around and use that to spend in their ecosystem as well. Kind of cool that you're, you're seeing stuff that's existing companies out there that are continuing to move towards Web3. And then the, the last thing that I had was... Well, real quick on that Wi-Fi thing. That's interesting to me. So when um, so Australia, like 10 years ago, decided to do nationwide broadband to make it like super accessible to everybody. And my, one of my, my roommate from college actually moved to Australia because he was a civil engineer that did cell phone towers. <clears throat> and so basically they had to redo all the cell phone towers to put all new equipment plus build a ton of new ones. And that's the kind of thing that governments do. What usually doesn't happen is a private company says, hey, I have a way to provide access to everyone using the more or less the current, you know, what, but it's kind of like the Uber for Wi-Fi. It's like, oh, you have unused Wi-Fi. We'll, we'll pay you a little bit for it. Like, hey, you, you don't use your car all the time. Drive it around and we'll pay you. So that's kind of that's one of those interesting things that might act, might work and maybe maybe it doesn't work for Wi-Fi but maybe it works for something else you know I mean it works for Airbnb so um, yeah maybe it will work for Wi-Fi but uh, but yeah that's uh, that's that's worth thinking about um, like a good a good use case for for crypto there yeah and they have the free version but then they also have a, a paid version where you get some added features as well so it's it's exciting to see I mean. I have not downloaded the app yet, but it is probably something that I will take a look at, especially if you're traveling outside the U.S. I mean, depending on what cell phone service you have, it's kind of painful sometimes to use your cell phone and you're going to want to log on to a Wi-Fi and then you want to make sure that it's somewhat secure. So you're probably going to use a VPN and mm-hmm. <laughs> and then be able to, to use that to make phone calls or do whatever else you need to do. Um, and then the last thing that did I did see there was a software wallet, trustless wallet that had a hack. Uh, and part of the reason they had a hack is due to the way that they created their keys. So I think it only created like four billion different combinations for different types of keys. So uh, hackers were able to kind of brute force and find some some wallets out there. Uh, I mean, if you if you look at kind of Bitcoin and compare that. I think they describe the, if you can imagine your chances of winning a Powerball ticket, right? Which is super difficult to do, but you have a better chance of winning Powerball eight times in a row than you do guessing a Bitcoin wallet. <laughs> yeah. There's so many of them. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's wild. Uh, like just that, cryptography and private key technology even when they kind of flip it to make it easier with the seed words the 24 seed words 
it's wild how difficult it would be to crack somebody's private key. Yeah. So maybe just a plug, I guess, to put in there, if you're interested in learning more about hardware wallets and just crypto in general, there is a link in the show notes that uh, right now is still at 90% off to, to give you some more insight into some of the research that I've done and all these hardware wallets. And my wife keeps wondering why I keep buying more hardware wallets. And it's always just <laughs> to kind of keep testing the new one. And there's a bunch of cool ones out there and you can go see my research there as well. Cool. Well, that's all that I had on my end. Anything else interesting on your end, How that we needed to chat about? Uh, that's all I had on my end. Fantastic. Well, as always, great catching up, and we'll talk again next week. Sounds good, Jason. Appreciate it. If all of these crypto conversations leave you with more questions and you're looking for answers, I've created a product that dives into most of those answers, including why crypto, how to set up a cold wallet, and some of the more advanced strategies for dealing with crypto. Check the link in the notes below and hope to see you there.